Hello, I'm David Hepworth. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear, the latest of hundreds of chats Mark Allen and I have had over recent years, some between ourselves and others with musicians, authors, comedians, and other people we like. If you'd like to help make sure they continue, you might consider becoming a Patreon supporter by visiting patreon.com slash wordinyourear or just by liking or subscribing in whatever way you prefer. On with the show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to The Word Podcast. I'm David Hepworth and uh, this week I'm joined by um, looking after the levels and also contributing uh, Fraser Lurie. Hello Fraser. Good morning. And uh, and a special guest, um, the man who I suppose covers what you might call music business issues for Word uh, is Eamon Ford. Welcome Eamon. Hi there. Hello everybody. And and I thought it'd be a good opportunity because there seems to be a lot of things happening in the music business that seem to directly impact upon fans, users, buyers of records, people who are going to gigs more than ever. Yep. And this appears to me to be accelerating at the moment, the, the, the amount of change. Is, is that fair to say? Oh, no, absolutely. I think, you, I think you're completely right there. Basically, I think it's being driven by the record companies who've had, let's say, a rum all decade, basically since about 1999, coinciding with the launch of Napster, but not exclusively because of that. Uh, the record companies have kind of seen their bottom lines uh, fallen, prices being uh, pushed down, records aren't selling in the volumes that they were, uh, it took them a long time to get their heads around digital. So the, the core part of a lot of artists' income used to come from recorded music, not like in the 70s. Uh, well, I guess from the 70s, really, when the albums became uh, the dominant format and there was, a, there was enormous margins to be made on uh, LPs. But now that income's... Uh, being depleted, being eaten away by a variety of things. Obviously, piracy is one issue, and the industry would like to see that's the primary issue, but it's just one among many. There's uh, downward pressure on pricing. There's massive competition from other areas, uh, like the mobile industry, the gaming industry, DVD industry, and clothing, etc. So 
basically they, they, the headspace that the music industry has among consumers is being depleted because they're competing with so many other people. So uh, the old model doesn't apply in 2009. So there's lots of furious kind of re-sculpting of business 2.0 or business 3.0 even to try and, uh, I guess, kind of carve out a future, whether or not... Uh, that future will see the, the labels holding the power that they once had is open for debate, but at least they're trying. Now, this is probably an impossible question to answer, but, you know, if, if a record sold this much, you know, 15 years ago, what yeah. does it sell nowadays? What percentage of what it sold does it sell nowadays? Well, just to get an idea of the, the kind of relative decline. Because people do tend to like to think, oh, it's all right for artists, it's all right for record labels, they're making a fortune. But they're not, are they? No, not at all. Well, you, you'd be surprised. Like, certain, certain artists, like Elbow, for example, haven't even gone platinum on the seldom, uh, seldom Seen Kids. So, they haven't so it's won the Mercury Prize and it's been got very it. celebrated. Yep. And so platinum is how many? Was that 300,000? Uh, about 300,000. I think the last figure I heard, it was sitting about 250, 270. So uh, they're hoping, uh, well, Universal are very much hoping that the Brits will kind of have a knock-on effect on that and they'll push it into platinum sales. But then there's kind of aberrations like the IFPI yesterday just reported the... Uh the global sales figures for uh, records in 2008, and I think the Coldplay album did about six and a half million copies. Which is a lot. Yeah. Sweet so, so in certain areas of the market, yeah. blockbusters mm-hmm. can probably be doing better than ever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the long tail that we've heard a lot about hasn't, hasn't really provided a great deal of gravy for people, has it? Well, well the, the long tail's more associated with catalogue rather than frontline releases. Right. So if you think kind of uh, record companies are split between frontline and catalogue, so it's all the new stuff. So basically anything up to about 18 months, I think, is what, uh, what the majors would consider the cut-off point right. for new release. And then it goes into, uh, I guess, kind of mid-catalogues of stuff in the last kind of five, okay. ten years, and then deep catalogue. But even if, if you look at some of the kind of the celebrated albums over the years based against the biggest sellers of all time, like something like Sgt. Pepper doesn't even show up on the radar. No, no. So you'll have things like, obviously, Thriller and Black yeah. and Black and things like that have done, like, over 30 million copies globally. But those are, those are kind of global phenomenons that, that are, are very, very hard to kind of replicate. So Elbow, we're saying less than 300,000. The equivalent of Elbow, 15 years ago, would have sold what? What do you think? Well, I guess Elbow uh, were coming from... I guess they were always seen as a kind of an indie band. They were never really seen as a mainstream band, but obviously the move with this album onto Universal via the acquisition of V2 put, put some as, as a major label artist. But you would expect... A li- uh, an artist to have that much press coverage, that much TV and radio coverage, you would expect that to have done about a million by now in the right. UK. But obviously... Uh, so it's it possible to assume that, you know, 800,000 copies were pinched. Well, that, 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 that's a very kind of political argument about... But it's possible. That, yeah, yeah, no, well, of course, people... people that's might, certainly the way the record companies would look at it. Yes, well, they, they would see that as, uh, I guess, kind of a, a dent in the potential of the album, considering how much money was invested in recording the album, manufacturing the album, distributing the album, marketing the album, and so forth, putting the band on tour, getting them all those nice kind of key uh, slots, like at Glastonbury last year, which everybody kind of... 
uh, agreed that Elbow stole Glastonbury last year. Uh, but even then, it, it, it doesn't necessarily translate into sales. I think people might be people would be very aware of Elbow, but it doesn't necessarily follow that they'll they'll go into HMV or what's left of Zavi and stump up nine pounds to, to buy the album because they can they can access it uh, for free online if they want to break the law. Obviously, if we, but also they can listen to it on Spotify or whatever. All these yeah, other... absolutely. Yeah, well, I, I think Spotify is a very interesting solution to all this because you've, you've obviously got uh, uh, what the industry would see as a kind of lost demographic. Pretty much anybody under the age of about 30 doesn't really buy music in the way that perhaps we would or I guess the average word reader. We, we, we're kind of voracious consumers of music and we would buy, I, don't, I would probably buy on average, I don't know, about 50, 60 albums a year. And I know that kind of puts me kind of in a, a unique kind of freak corner. But young consumers, that, well, A, they don't have the money, and B, they're not really going to uh, stump up £10 or £9 or whatever to buy an album that they're not really sure about, that they're not really convinced about. I'm going to disagree with you here. Okay. Uh, I mean, actually, it's not true to say that they don't have the money. They do have the money. Well, they have they're, more they're, money well, than spending, ever they're spe- before. They're spending it elsewhere. They're spending okay, it mobile. They've mobilised. The thing about young people, you know, the notion of pocket money and so forth, that you had a kind of available disposable income was gone. Yeah. You know, they, they, they live very much off their parents' bank accounts in one way or another. You know, yeah. they, everything goes through the phone or through the broadband or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they mobilise huge amounts of money. Because interestingly, they, they, they just don't feel the need to own things in the same way. Yeah, I, I think this whole idea of the, the tangible object that we were brought up on, the LP and even into the CD, it was, it, was, it, was, it was an item that you held and you had on your shelves. And you yeah, kind of, yeah. like, if you had friends around, you go, look at my record collection, I've got 50 albums, I'm amazing. But now they're basically, uh, I guess, kind of young consumers who just go, look at the size of my hard drive, I've got yeah. 150 gig of music. It doesn't necessarily have the same romantic appeal that we might associate with music, but the fact is that they're just consuming music in a completely different way. And it's very much out of step with the way the industry has been built over the last 50, 60 years. So, therefore, the industry has to find ways to, what, what they would uh, refer to as monetizing that. That. Mm-hmm. And obviously, something like Spotify is one way to do that. It's a, it's a free streaming service uh, in exchange for listening to a set number of ads. Uh, I think it's probably about one every five or six songs you're getting an ad night. So it works like a radio station that you might want to listen to. Well, 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 it's more than that because it basically puts you in total control because you can call up any artist and you can call up the albums, you can play the album in whatever order you want, uh, and you can just you can build playlists and so forth. It's not like something like Last FM, which uh, I don't know if they, I'm assuming the readers people know, will have, people will will know about it, Last yeah. FM. It's much more of a kind of recommendation uh, service. It it uses a bit of technology called Audio Scrubbler, which kind of scans through your your plays on your computer, on your iPods, and it matches you with like-minded people. So, say hypothetically, on your on your big playlist on, on your, your uh, iPhone or your iPod are Bob Dylan and MGMT and Glass Vegas and Blind Willie McTell, for example. They'll, look, they'll search out all the other users who are also playing those artists to right about the same extent that you are, but they're also interested in other artists, and then it'll match their taste with yours and vice versa. So it's, a, it's more about, uh, I guess, Last FM's more about discovery, whereas Spotify's very much about, it's about destination listening, I guess. In the same way that iTunes is very much about that. You go to iTunes with a very clear idea of what you want to buy. The, the actual shop window's tiny. It's not yeah. like browsing in a, in a Virgin Megastore, as was. 
So you're going in there with a very clear idea of I want to buy this track or this album and off you go and you don't really discover stuff in uh, iTunes in the way that you would on something like Last FM. And Spotify, I guess, is sitting somewhere in the middle. It's, you might have heard, I don't know, for example, when John Martin passed away, I, I went into Spotify and started digging up uh, albums of his that I'd never heard before. So it, it, and then that kind of prompted me to go on and, and buy them. I don't know if uh, there's the same purchase trigger for other people, but it certainly worked for me yeah. because I was able to kind of test drive it, knowing that it was legal and that royalties were ultimately being paid to the label. And then I guess what is now the John Martin estate right. are actually going to see some money out of that rather than me going to various peer-to-peer networks and just lifting stuff wholesale. So the, the, the wise people in the city, although they don't look so wise at the moment, uh, you know, for years been saying to the record companies, well, you've got to get away from physical product, you've got to, you know, you've got to be able to deliver people the music as noughts and ones via legitimate de- digital download services. You've written a piece in the current issue of Word, the, the issue with John Martin on the cover, about looking at various of these providers, yep. you know, from naps to the legal naps to, to Seven Digital, who actually provide you know the shop on the on the word site. Yep. Now, is it reasonable to assume that the record companies can can uh, get anything like the same revenue in the digital world as they got in the physical product world? Well, uh, it's, it's an issue of margins, and uh, at the moment, uh, somebody like iTunes has pretty much got the whip hand, and they're uh, effectively dictating the price, so we've, we've got a kind of universal price of 79p for a download, or about £7 or 7.99 for an album. And obviously the labels can't set the retail price because there's, there's various kind of competition issues related to that, just like they couldn't set the retail price in uh, a physical retailer. The, the problem is that digital is the bit of the industry that's growing against the decline in the physical side, but it's still only a small part of overall income. I think that the last figures put uh, digital income at about just under 20% of label income. So 80% of label's income is still coming from CDs. So, so even though record still- shops are closing daily... Yeah. You know, so, you know the c- people are buying less physical products. That well, yeah. is still 80%. Yeah, it, it's still 80%, but basically you've got this 20% of digital that's growing against a decline, both in unit terms, although certain albums will, like the Coldplay example, will kind of uh, uh, break with, uh, buck the convention. But against that, there's massive, massive discounting of albums. I don't know if you remember when CDs came out, they were all about 18, 19 pounds, what, 25 years ago. The average price for an album in the UK, I think, is settled just over £8. And that's partly been driven by uh, retailers panicking to try and get people through the doors, but also the enormous growth of the supermarkets, who have a very limited catalogue, but they've got a very strong grip on the market. So somebody like Tesco has got a phenomenal share yeah. of the market. I think it's, uh, it's probably about the third biggest physical retailer in the country. So like, it, it starts now to dictate back to the labels. The labels were very happy to go with the uh, supermarkets uh, in the early days because it was, another, yeah, yeah. it was another shop window for them. But the supermarkets very much treat it, uh, physical product, as a lost leader. Go in, get your fruit and veg, and pick up the, the album of, 
of the week or whatever or whatever we're, we're promoting this week. So they were, they were just about making money on that, probably not making very much money on that, but that's had a wider uh, kind of ripple effect on the whole industry where the specialist retailers, the HMVs and the FOPs and so forth, have also had to discount their uh, catalogue uh, and their titles to compete. Just so, because you, so can, you can't compete with the so enormity you, of somebody like Tesco. So you get, well, they should have asked the magazine business if they <laughs> wanted to know what happens to you. <laughs> you you know, deal with uh, supermarkets, use a very long spoon. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, so you've got your group Elbow, good example, very yeah. good example. Uh, and they're selling you know, probably a third of what they might have sold if, you know, if they put the record out when the, the cotton was high and the living was easy. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, following through what you just said, they're also earning far less money from it. Oh, absolutely. Because, because they, they would have got 17 quid retail price or whatever. Well, obviously... That's a long time ago. But, you know. obviously, obviously, a cut of that will go to the retailer and there's fat and there's the, the manufacturing costs and there's yeah. various deductions and so forth, which uh, I probably shouldn't really comment on because it's something the artist managers have had had a, a long run and gripe with uh, record companies about what they actually make out but of. But they're getting less money. No, I can't ab- ab- Absolutely. Uh, because, uh, well, I guess a lot of money's being poured into marketing, and that, that's all got to be recouped. On your video costs have got to be recouped, your tour support, and so forth. So the, the cost of, of building a band is probably as much as it was, but the units aren't there, and the margins on those unit sales just aren't there to uh, make money. They, they often they often quoted stat about the music industry, which was reinforced recently when uh, EMI's uh, books were audited by the city. I basically found that only one in ten artists actually turn a profit sure. for record companies. So if you think of that massive glut of artists who are going through the A and R channels and gates to get through. Only one in ten of those artists will actually make money out of recorded music. And pretty much every manager that I've spoken to, uh, and every kind of artist lawyer I've spoken to, basically would tell artists that if you sign a record deal, do not expect to make any money out of it. You're, you're going to be massively in debt to the record company. Use that as a springboard to make money in other ways. So lives, obviously, one way. Uh, associating yourself with brands yeah. and somebody like... Merchandise. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So let's let's talk about life. So so yeah. I'm elbow or whatever, and I'm looking at my potential revenue for next year. And uh, you know, even if my record does quite well, I'm not probably not going to make enough money to pay the mortgage of you know number of guys in a group and a manager. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I start looking around for other ways to make money. Uh, and live is obviously you know we've all read about there's been a live explosion in the last. Five or six years, I suppose. Oh, well, it's been going up for at least the last decade, kind of about 10% year on year. So the most classic contrast was, I think, you know, if you look back in the early 70s, you know, Led Zeppelin, you'd, you'd buy the record for whatever... And you could go and see them for half the price yep. that you pay for the record, mm-hmm. and then that switched. And oh, it's, five it's, years. it's completely turned on its head. What was Live was a loss leader to sell albums, but now albums are effectively a loss leader to sell tours and other revenue opportunities, be so they you, sponsorship yeah. or branding. So you've written a piece in the current issue uh, of Word, "Gigs Won't Fly," uh, which is speculating that, th- that this year the live bubble might burst. I think it's, it's going to burst. If, if a bubble can burst in the middle, it's going to burst in the middle. I don't know if that's a really bad metaphor. Uh, 
I haven't spoken to various people in the live industry, obviously uh, all of them off the record because there are massive sensitivities related to this. The basic conclusion that I was getting from the people I was uh, speaking to was that your super tours are still going to do phenomenally well. ACDC, like Soul Out in Seconds, Kings of Leon, uh, uh, various other artists going on, on mega tours, doing incredible business. The, the grassroots artists, the people playing the Dublin Castle or the Betsy Trotwood or... I don't know, nice and sleazies in Glasgow, they're still going to get the people through the door because it's only three or four pounds. The people who are really, really going to feel the pains this year, I think, are those people at the mid-level who are maybe playing Brixton Academy once or twice a year. Um, they haven't really jumped beyond that, that, that stage. I'm thinking probably an example of a band that been, uh, kind of got a lot of coverage but never really made that migration is something like Maximo Park. Or kind of, are, they, are they cursed to always play the, uh, the Brixton Academy? Is that, is, that, is that as big as they're going to get? The fact is that, that they'll have a loyal following, but are you really going to go, in, I guess, in a year of recession to see Maximo Park again? You've seen them every year for the last five years, and you know that they're going to be touring next year, they're going to be playing the festivals. So I think, unfortunately, it's those bands who are at that mid-level who desperately need the income from live to upset, offset the decline in their physical, uh, or their CD uh, income, uh, I think they're the ones who are really going to feel the pinch, because uh, I, I think the, the argument I used in... Um, in that piece was the idea about kind of familiarity breeding contempt or breeding apathy. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a couple of years ago, we were, everybody was saying, oh, acts like that will do really well because they'll, they'll cultivate their fan base via the internet. They'll keep in very close control, their contact with them. They won't have spent fortunes marketing themselves. Yeah. But people just get... They, they, it's familiarity, it's like you say. It's like, well, Richard Thompson toured recently, and I know there's been discussion of this on the Word website, wordmagazine.co.uk. People saying, well, I, I didn't bother going this time, I'll go next time. Mm -hmm. Because everybody knows that everybody's just going to keep coming round, aren't they? You yeah, know? well, but, well, I mean, even Madonna or whatever, you know, the people are never off the road, are they? Well, well, Madonna's slightly different because she has to be on the road because of the deal that she signed with Live Nation about a year and a half ago. So she, she signed what was, uh, I guess, was seen as, as the first true 360-degree deal, which is something that record companies have been trying to do to kind of take uh, an interest in uh, their artists' other income sources, which previously they didn't have access to, so sponsorship, and live and so forth. They, they underwrote the cost of that and building up the artists, but they never actually got to share in those uh, incomes. Uh, new artists are being presented with uh, kind of 360 deals. And as far as I know, no true 360 deal has been signed. I guess the furthest you could get would be a 270 deal, which uh, includes everything ex except publishing, so the songwriting royalties and management. But there obviously are moves to go that way. But the Madonna deal, she was obviously out of contract with Warner and had various spats with Warner about this, and she signed a massive mega deal. There's various speculations about how much that was worth to uh, Live Nation for 10 years. So that covered everything. It, uh, it covers, as far as I know, three record albums, which I don't know if anybody needs a new Madonna album, but it's just another incentive. It's another hook to kind of push the tour. Uh, so she did a massive tour last year, broke box office records for the biggest gross of female tour of the year, and then very quickly this year announced another set of European dates because Live Nation have paid so much money up front. You've got to get it back. They need to make money back, but you can you can make enormous money back if you've got a production on the road. It costs more to take them off the road for a couple of months if, uh, than it is to just have the odd kind of gig here and there. 
So she might, there might just be this consistent rule and tour, maybe like the Bob Dylan never ending tour with, with more leotards and. <laughs> and isn't and, that going to apply to everyone? I mean, if you don't make money from record sales anymore and you have to go out on the road to make money, everyone's. No, expensive. absolutely, but Madonna, the Madonna case is, is slightly different because of the, the advances that she was getting from Live Nation. So, because Live Nation have obviously ponied up a hell of a lot of money to get her on this exclusive 10 year contract. So they want her out working and bringing in money because she's going to be 60 by the time that contract <laughs> expires. And that's, I, I, I don't mean to be misogynistic about this, but a, a Madonna show when she's 59 is not going to be as good as uh, a Madonna show when she's 35. Uh, otherwise, it just descends into pantomime, like kind of going to see the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger kind of strutting around like so, a drunk peacock. So how, how much were, were deals like that uh, connected with the fact that companies like Live Nation had to get their headlines in the city pages. You know, they had to be seen to be doing big things. They, they, they certainly had to be seen to be doing big things, but their back wasn't up against the wall as much as the record companies were. I think uh, the Live Nation uh, deal with Madonna was very much a, a statement of intent about, uh, as record companies tried to encroach on live, the live industry was going, hold on a minute, we can do it the other way. Right. And we, we know where the money's being made, we've got the expertise and the infrastructure to actually make money off tours, you don't. And we, like, putting out a Madonna album, how hard is it going to be? Put her in the studio with a producer, every retailer is going to pick up on it. Most radio stations will do it. It, it markets itself, because she's had 25 years of Warners pouring millions into her to build her up to be the megastar that she is. But uh, Live Nation basically just wanted to make a very, very bold statement about it could do everything that the record companies could do as well. Whether or not they can remains to be seen when they, when the first recorded fruits of the Madonna deal come out. But I think it was very much a statement of intent by Live Nation, although that's had massive repercussions because that was driven by uh, Michael Cole, who was heading up Live Nation. But then there was various kind of shareholder and uh, board members and votes of no confidence and so forth. And he had to step down uh, in the summer last year. Um, the impression I'm getting, or certainly what I'm being told, is that he was very much the architect of those types of deals. He did similar deals with Shakira and Nickelback, called Lovis. Uh, but I think those kind of deals were very much kind of his last hurrah, or his last big statement. And I'm getting the feeling that Live Nation's uh, kind of internal business ideology doesn't necessarily agree with that. So obviously they're locked into this deal with Madonna. I don't think we'll see very many of those yeah, deals again. Along. Because you obviously you need, for those deals to work, you need massive artists who are still able to tour, who are out of contract. And um, The last kind of big example of that was the Rolling Stones who ended their contract with EMI at the end of last year, but then signed to Universal. So they still went down the traditional route. So they, 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 they were very much about still working with the labels because maybe is that the fact that they've been doing it since 1963 and they don't know anything different. But Donna was very much, uh, uh, and I don't think she would mind me saying this, very much had an eye on, on, the, on the bigger chance. She is listening. Yeah, yeah she is. Uh, <laughs> hi, Madonna. Hi, oh, yeah. Love so, the new album. So, um, you know, as if, as if people didn't think that the live concert business was, was increasingly consolidated under the power of one big company, Live Nation. Yeah. Uh, recently, there's been... Has this merger with Ticketmaster happened? So, well, it, so we've got it, the biggest promoter yeah. and the biggest seller of tickets. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Are now what? The same company? Yes, but the, the, this is all going to go through uh, antitrust regulators in the States, so there'll be various... This will be dragged out for... This could 
be dragged out for four or five years. There could be various concessions that they both have to make because Live Nation had, uh, has its own kind of fledgling ticket industry or ticket business, so it might have to dump that to absorb uh, Ticketmaster. Uh, so there'll be, there'll be various arguments from other rival promoters, other rival ticket agencies to say that this is unfair, this creates an immovable monopoly and we can't compete and they, they control kind of all the access to market that we can't get. But let's say it happens. Yeah. Let's say it happens. So I'm Bruce Springsteen or whoever and I want to go on tour. Yep. How, how, does, how does that process work? What do I do? I'll sit down with Michael Cole's Followers, yeah. you know, whoever's come after him, because mm-hmm. I can't go to anybody else. Yeah. yeah, I can't go to local promoters. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've got to go and do a deal with with this huge, you know, dark star. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, what do they do? Do they write me a big check? I guess. Well, they they would look at a how many dates is he going to do? Uh, B, when was the last time he did a big tour? Yeah, okay. Because so there's, not, there, there, there's nothing that sells better than scarcity. So right. if, if, if Bruce Springsteen's greatest asset is his show with the E Street Band, which obviously he's reunited with because he knows that that's going to pull in the punters when he's rather much more than if he's going to do kind of Pete Seeger yeah. sats or something like that. So they'll basically sit down and say, okay, what... How many dates are you going to commit to? Can we add in extra dates around that? What size of arenas are you going to play? And then they'll they'll work out a, a, a scaled ticket price. There'll be the they'll, they'll be the kind of the the goats and chickens standing at the back for fifty dollars, whatever. And there's an increasing move towards premium tickets, so you can kind of you can get a whole evening of entertainment. You can be brought there by a limo yeah. and you get champagne and, do, a, and but, a waiter and all of that. But do they pay the artists first? I mean, do, do they kind of buy the tour off them and then they have to make as much money back as they possibly can? Is it like an advance? I, I guess so, but it, it, the the live industry is incredibly secretive about how it works. <laughs> so uh, I, I really wouldn't want to say. But obviously, there will be various commitments on the promoter. They'll, they'll have to commit to a certain advertising sure. budget and so forth, and the artist will have to commit to a certain number of dates without cancellations, and they'll have to. But, I, but the point being, as the artist, I might get paid up front. Mm-hmm. And if the tour kind of undershoots slightly, I don't lose, really. Yeah, well, the, 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 there might be two ways to do it. There might be the, the total buyout, so you get a massive yeah. advance and go, OK, you will get paid this in instalments as you complete these dates. Or there might be a lower advance and also a cut off and the ticket price. More, yeah. So it, it really depends on if the artist believes in themselves enough that yeah. the tour's going to sell out at whatever, $100, $100, dollars $150 a ticket, if they're going to actually have the... the belief in themselves to take a smaller advance but recoup on the uh, uh, on the ticket sales. It's the old, I guess it's the old uh, argument by Alec Guinness in Star Wars. He, he didn't take a massive fee but he, he got a cut of yeah. the merchandise off the back of it, which at the time people thought was madness because I mean, what's this? The, this is Cowboys in Space. It's not going to take off and it became one of the biggest movie franchises in the world and Alec Guinness actually made a hell of a lot of money out of that right. because he he, he saw that there was potential for the merchandise tie-ins and made money that way. But that, that's a massive, massive gamble. I think most artists are uh, not massive risk-takers. Um, big artists, certainly on the, the Madonna, Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney size, they like money and they like security and they want to have their whatever X million pound check at the end of it for the work done. Right. Now, the... Um 
There's been a recent... Uh, Bruce Springsteen announced some dates in the United States. He announced some here, but announced some in the United States. And then there was a controversy over, over tickets finding their way onto what we call the secondary ticketing market, isn't yep. it? Now, can you explain this? Well, how did this happen? Well, this, this was done through, uh, through Live Nation, I believe. It, it was a secondary ticket and site called Tickets Now. And uh, there was massive, massive controversy about it because I think tickets were going for like 20, 30 times the, the face value. And obviously, the, the secondary ticket and market is an area that's incredibly controversial in live. There's various different players out there, like StubHub, one of the big ones in the US, Viagogo, uh, in Europe. And basically, what, what they find is that t- tours are selling out in record time, partly driven by online, because you can just go on, you can, you can buy your four tickets and, and so forth. It wasn't like the old days where you had to queue up overnight at the box office. So tickets are being bought up incredibly quickly and being put up on these. Well, first of all, they were being put up on eBay, and there was various kind of political wranglings over that because people were creaming off a profit. You, you could buy... I don't know, for example, Paul McCartney goes on tour and you got in there early, bought four tickets at 100 quid each and then sell them for £400 each on uh, eBay, make a massive profit. So the secondary ticket and market was, I guess, a legal response to that, to try and regulate this industry. So the, the way it works is that if you're selling a ticket, you can set the, the price and a percentage of that goes to uh, the facilitator, so StubHub or Viagogo. But also when you buy a ticket, a percentage of what you're paying is also going to you. They're getting paid, I guess, twice from the seller and from the buyer. It becomes problematic when artists begin to endorse this as Madonna did with Viagogo and StubHub last year, knowing that the tickets would sell out uh, in record time, but there was also this very grey secondary market, and the tickets could go £100 tickets could be going for £500, and the artist uh, and the promoter are also getting a cut of the of the profit on the resale price, which artist managers would argue that there's this grey market has emerged, and they, it's not fair that people are profiting off their, their talent, so I, I can kind of understand that argument. But then there's the, the consumer argument that these artists are complicit in scalping their own fans, which is a much more problematic set of, uh, set of issues. And uh, the artists wouldn't say that they're doing that. They're saying that they're trying to bring uh, regulation to the Wild West, and uh, they're trying to rein it all in, but they're also making money out of this. It's very interesting. On the, whenever you try and get... I don't know if you've had more success than I have. Whenever you try and get an artist to talk about this, this stuff, you, know, you find they're very free with their opinions on you know, Israel and Palestine yeah. and, and you know, do you eat meat or whatever. But anything to do with their business, where they might be profiting out of things that are, you know, don't look very good. They, yeah. they don't want to talk about it at all. They profess complete ignorance, won't no, they? Well, 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 they'll do that. But they'll also say, oh, we need to do something and it's not fair that people are getting ripped off in these unregulated environments like... Who's the person eBay? getting ripped off? Is it the customer or is it them? That's the way they look at it. Well, yeah. But so, somebody did a survey on this, and Bruce Springsteen taught a few years ago, and somebody took a, a block of seats in a, in a gig in Minneapolis or whatever. Right. And said, okay, the, the, those seats, retail price, cost, put them all together, $10,000, whatever. Mm-hmm. Then they went and asked all the people sitting in those blocks, how much are you paid? And they found that actually $70,000 had been paid for those seats that the promoter had sold at $10,000. Wow. So you can kind of see, mm. you know, that, that this house, they're looking out of this house and thinking, this house has paid $5 million, 
I did a deal for one million dollars. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Well, they, they'll see people kind of uh, uh, cutting off a, a nice, tasty profit off their hardware. They're obviously getting paid for it, and they'd agreed what they were going to get paid for. But they they don't like kind of uh, people coming in and making money. But there, there, there's definitely a real need to regulate this because uh, people buying stuff on eBay. There's no guarantee that, A, the tickets will show up, or if the artist cancels the show, as Morrissey did when he did his run at the Roundhouse, I think it was last year, that he, he cancelled about two gigs into the, a five-night run. And I uh, heard anecdotally mm. about people travelling from Japan, and they bought tickets oh, on eBay. Really? And you've so got no recourse? They've got absolutely no recourse at all. So they've they lost the money. Beware of that one. Yeah, so they... That, that's obviously something like StubHub and Viagogo will put certain safeguards in place. So I, I, I think that's, that's definitely a move in the right direction because it is protecting the fan ultimately because uh, if, you, if you didn't actually buy the tickets and bought them off dodgy bloke in pub that you met via eBay... You've got, you're not going to get your money back for a start. And then particularly if you're for a small show like Morrissey at the Roundhouse and people travelling thousands of miles and spending thousands of pounds to get there just to see him in a small, a small show, they've, they've lost an, a hell of a lot of money. So, well, you never know, given the current climate, the government may, uh, may nationalise, uh, you know, Live Nation, you know, start with the banks. <laughs> well, but the, but the government has looked into this whole uh, regulator, uh, the regulation of the, of the ticket industry and particularly the the, the secondary market and it's kind of stopped short of actually forcing anything through it's it's basically taken a stance of uh, try and self-regulate and then we'll come back to it so there is there is an idea that the the live industry kind of needs to kind of ensure that it is everything's transparent and that it's trying to be as honest as possible and obviously it's dealing with kind of unknown forces of kind of uh, secondary ticketing on non-regulated sites and it has to react it, it's got a consumer obligation and it's got an obligation to the artist that it's putting on tour to put some form of regulation in there and I think secondary ticketing, legal secondary ticketing is an, a natural byproduct of that but how that's interpreted by the fans remains to be seen. I think particularly if, if the artists are actually getting a cut of, uh, of dedicated fans trying for weeks and weeks and weeks to get tickets and then they're left with no other recourse but to pony up four or five times the, uh, the ticket price. And then if they think that the artist is getting money from that and is in complicit in fueling this secondary market then uh, they, they might kind of reconsider their, their fan loyalty. I think the time is right for some artists to step forward, actually, and just, well, you know, because I think they have a point. Hmm. Uh, but they've got to be prepared to front it, really, haven't they? You know, because people, I think the attitude of most fans is, is everybody's making a fortune, I'm getting ripped off. You know, yeah. well, you might be getting ripped off, but not necessarily is everybody making a fortune. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't kind of work like that, does it? Well, well, I think for years and years and years, live has got away with murder. I don't mean that they're actually murdering people in the crowd. But <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and I know the, the live industry's got various kind of concerns uh, and so forth, and it, it tries to ensure crowd safety and various things like that. But... The, the way that people are treated at concerts isn't, isn't very glowing, I don't think. They, well, first of all, the price. You go in there, overpriced beer through the exclusive pouring partner or whoever, horrible hamburgers, overpriced merchandise, terrible sound, terrible view. But people were prepared to put up with that, to kind of be in the same space as their favourite artists. They would put up with all that terrible treatment of 
kind of surly bouncers and security checks and not being allowed to bring in a bottle of water, for example, because you've got to buy it at the bar. And they were prepared to put up with that just because they could breathe the same air for 90 minutes as Mick Jagger or whoever. But now I think they're, they're becoming a lot wiser to that and they're, they're expecting a lot more from the gig experience I think the band showing up and playing a run of the hits isn't enough anymore, I think people are expecting a lot more they want, they want to go to a gig where they feel valued, not just as a, as a fan but actually as a paying customer going through the, through the gates of uh, uh, Twickenham Stadium or uh, the Brixton Academy, they want to be treated well and I don't think they have been treated as well as they could have been. I'm sure the live industry would have various arguments uh, to say that they do look after the punters, but I'm sure kind of a lot of the listeners anecdotally would say that actually going to going to gig is not a particularly no, no. pleasant experience. No. And that's that's not necessarily uh, a sign of getting old. I, I thought this when I was 17 and going to gigs, I thought that people got treated badly, and I don't think that that's kind of improved a huge amount. Obviously, there's been investment in making the sound better and kind of uh, building new arenas that are designed for tens of thousands of people. Something like the U2 is actually for a big venue is well designed. You can see, you can hear. It's nice. It's not filthy. The toilets work. That kind of thing. Uh, but I think I think maybe something like the O2 might be kind of pointing the way uh, for things, uh, the way things will go in the live industry, because it was very much about kind of an experience about kind of going there. Obviously, they want to cross sell you lots of things when you go in and push you through to whatever the the nachos restaurant and <laughs> bars and and whatever like that. But the the times I've gone to the O2, like you can get served at the bar. And yeah. the staff are actually happy to see you, which uh, I've been to many gigs at the soon-to-be-defunct Astoria, and it was almost like uh, it was too much trouble to let you in the door. And I, I don't think... I think maybe when you're 17, you see that as a bit of rough and tumble, and you kind of see that as the, a rite of passage in the same way as dealing with the surly uh, shop assistant in specialist record store. But when you hit 25 and you're, you're paying up a significant amount of money to see a band and then drinks in there with friends and so forth. Well, you're paying, you're paying more than you would at the opera, aren't you? Yeah. You know well, what I mean? This paying. is not a kind of... This is not a lower, you know, echelon entertainment. Yeah. This is the most expensive. Yeah, well, well, I'm entertainment. Yeah, when I when I go to more gigs, expensive than football. Yeah, when I go to gigs, I don't buy any merchandise, but buying the ticket and then the uh, the cost of the uh, getting the ticket sent to me in the booking fee and then buying a couple of drinks and so forth. A gig's going to cost you, set your bike about fifty quid to see somebody in a kind of two thousand, three thousand seater uh, venue. That, that's a hell of a lot of money to be to be treated not not brilliantly, I think. And I, th- I think this is this is where the live industry can kind of right a lot of the wrongs of the past. And if this is the, if this is the year of recession and it's really going to bite the live industry, the live industry really needs to do something to to get people back through the doors to make them actually crave going to a venue. To, it's an idea I've had for years and years and years, and the live industry is more than welcome to take this idea. It's the idea of the loyalty card. So you've got like Nectar Card, or you go to Cafe Nero, Starbucks, and for every ten coffees you buy, you get one free. There should be something out there which uh, rewards kind of consistent gig goers so if you go to 10 gigs at, at academy owned venues you get the 11th for yeah, free yeah. that's a good idea and, and I think 
the live industry's never had to do that because um, yeah. uh, it's been demand a run business. Yeah, well, 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 demand's massively outstripped supply. Yeah. But our point with that beginning to be questioned, I think they, they really need to step up to the market. They really I tell you what I think. I think an even more simple, practical thing than that. I, I think major venues should have a, a little kiosk in the foyer where somebody there to listen to your complaints That's at the end good. of the evening. Because the number of times, and we get loads of correspondence about this on the word website and through the letters page, whatever, people go to gigs, and their experience is as good as the local annoyance that they had to put up with. You know what I mean? I couldn't park. Or yeah. the person in front of me was talking all the time. Mm-hmm. Or I couldn't see. It's not to do with how magnificent the spectacle is. It's just to do with those little stupid trifling things. Which a gig being a gig, there is nobody to take it up with. No, absolutely. If you went to the Royal Opera House and they stuck you behind a pillar, they would have told you that beforehand. Mm-hmm. And there would probably be, you could probably go and see the manager of the Royal Opera House if you were cross enough. Yeah. They would, the manager would expect to be seen by irate customers. You know, but there is sort of nobody at a gig. It's a sort of impersonal experience. And I think a loyalty card is a very, very interesting idea because what you'd open up is a dialogue between the, the, the venue, the artist, yeah. and, the, and the consumer. Because you, the consumers could then do something which they hardly ever do, which is complain directly. Mm-hmm. They complain to us, but yeah. fair enough. And I understand people want to vent. But, but, but what people don't do is write to the promoter and say, you told me this would happen, mm-hmm. and it didn't. Yeah, well, I think the problem is that the gig-goers have never... They've only been loyal to artists. They've never been loyal to venues. You're not going to go to, uh, I don't know, Brixton Academy again or uh, Hammersmith Apollo to see anybody just because you love the venue. The, the venues have been able to get away with that a little way because they basically just book the artists, and if you book them, they will come. And they... They can just basically just process people through, get the get the money at the bar, yeah. get a cut of the uh, the merchandise stall, uh, etc. Off off they go, and I think that the venues maybe need to start thinking a little bit like the supermarkets, where they, there are reasons for you to go back to that venue. I, I think some of them are. I mean, if you look at the Luminaire in Kilburn, that is kind of developing a reputation as a place yeah, where well, you can go it, and enjoy yourself. Yeah, but, and not so the Luminaire is the place, in case anybody doesn't know, that that posts uh, you know boards all around the place saying. Shut up! Yes. Yeah, we, you know, people have not come to hear you talking to your mates. They've come to hear, hear the band. You know, well, so the, obviously, the, the, the public for that. Yeah, the, well, the Luminaire is a good example because uh, it's very much uh, a, a reaction to, to bad gig experiences. I'm sure the people behind the venue were very much driven by terrible, terrible treatment in other venues. And that's fine for the Luminaire when you're going to have a dedicated following of people who are there just to see that band or that series of bands but then when, when you drag it out to a bigger arena so kind of 3,000 upwards there's obviously going to be a lot of dedicated fans but there's going to be a lot of kind of uh, disgruntled boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives being dragged along or friends being dragged along who don't necessarily like the band that much their friends do and they've got tickets or they, they happen to have a spare ticket so the idea of the kind of the dedicated audience, yeah, of course they're there, but there's also going to be those kind of transient people yeah, yeah. who aren't really that into it, so they might actually start fiddling about on their phone when... But you see, I think there should be a lounge up the back, you see, for people who are disengaged. I think, I, think, I think sort of audience segregation, there's a lot to be said for it. You know, that when you ring up to order a ticket, 
they ought to say, will you be talking? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, will you be snogging, you know, with your girlfriend or whatever? You know, uh, uh, will you at any stage haul your girlfriend onto your shoulders? And, mm-hmm. I, and are you six foot four tall? You know, and then they will allot people places according to what the disposition is. And like I don't the, crash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well to, to, just, just on the spin and the, uh, another idea I had, uh, which is uh, another spin on the loyalty card, is kind of the more uh, you go to a venue, the kind of the closer to the front you get and the better your conditions are. So all Ultimately, it ends up that the holy grail is like... The a, a, no, but you're actually... There's a sofa on stage with the tease made. <laughs> and, and sitting there is Steve Lamack. <coughs> yes. So the, the more, the more games you go to, the better, the better view you they, get. They do this at the cricket. I've been to the Oval with 2020 games and there's been a sofa on the side of the pitch. Really? Yeah. Oh. oh, well, there, there, there is, I, I started this conversation thinking that things looked hopeless, you know, but I've decided by the end that actually, thanks to Eamon Ford's, you know, uh, manifesto for change, I, yes. think, I think the future could be, could be very bright. But I think one of the things people have to do is to make their feelings known, you know, after they've had experiences. Yeah. And, and by all means, let us know, but also let promoters, let artists know, you know, because... That, that's the only way, you know, where there's a genuine groundswell of a kind of consumer revolution. Yeah. That's the only way that, uh, that things will change. So, look, Eamon, thanks very much indeed. Oh, thank you. Uh, for contributing to this and uh, covering all that stuff. And uh, if you've got anything to say about it, uh, anything we've discussed here, as they say on the BBC, if you've been affected by any of the <laughs> issues in this podcast, please feedback on the website, wordmagazine.co.uk. And can I just send a message out to the promoters of London? Please don't bar me from your venues after everything I've said today. Thank You'll you. Right. You'll be all right. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.